0: This is Americana Podcast, the 51st state. one thing that we love here at americana podcast it is the concept of the artistic process we're not alone in this it seems that when anyone speaks about artists musical visual conceptual you name it one of the first things people will go into or ask about is how a piece of art came to exist we've been doing it for three years on this show and even when you ask an artist how did you do this there's no guarantee you're going to get a straight answer if anything in the interest of mystique you're more likely to be left with more questions about creation than you are to be given clarity. Our curiosity about the subject is in itself inherently curious. If it is present, if it already exists for us to view or listen to or think about, why do we care how it got there? That feels like a much deeper question that a philosopher would probably be able to answer. But as a semi-professional music lover with a microphone, I think it's because the artistic process reminds us that art, no matter its shape, is still inherently human that it is subject to the time and strengths and limitations and abilities of the ones who make it. The artist lives a life, creates based on that experience, then puts those creations out into the world to say, I've made this. It's a very human process. And even when it's difficult to like humanity, it is easy to love that which reminds us that we're still human. On today's episode, we welcome an artist who embraces that humanity and pursues creation and the artistic process enough to have made 34 records so far in his career. Jim Lauderdale, a native of Troutman, South Carolina, released his first record in 1991. A natural collaborator, he's worked with the likes of Rodney Crowell, Buddy Miller, Nick Lowe, and Roland White. He's had songs cut by everyone from Elvis Costello to George Strait. And like anyone in the music industry, he's had his ups and downs. And he'd be the first to tell you. In just a few moments of being in a room with Lauderdale, it's difficult not to be struck by his kindness and forthcoming nature. He's also a bit of a prankster, I found out the hard way. So join us today as our host, Robert Earl Keane, speaks with Jim Lauderdale about the artistic process, the documented phenomenon known as the Jim Lauderdale effect, and more. I'm your producer, Clara Rose, and this is Americana Podcast, The 51st State.
1: everyone i'm robert earl keen and you're listening to americana podcast the 51st state today we're so honored by the presence of just i would say the quintessential americana artist and i would say also uh, you take the americana word and you say i can i mean he's the i can americana artist and he, he <laughs> i know that's corny but <laughs> whatever anyway so uh, and so, ladies and gentlemen, Jim Lauderdale. How are you, Jim? I'm fine. I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> I am fine. Doing yeah. great. Yeah. <laughs> so, I want to know first about
2: Tai Chi. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I was uh, a kid, for some reason, I was, you know, I saw this karate book uh-huh. in, a, in the drugstore for sale, so I... There was just something about it, and then when that, but I, I there weren't any instructors I know of. I was in Charlotte, North Carolina at that time, living there, and then um, later when I was in high school, that TV show Kung Fu was on. With David Carradine. <sighs> and David and Car- I just thought, and then also before that, I'd seen this made-for-TV movie I think called The Tribe, with uh, John Jan Michael Vincent, uh, where he plays this. Uh, kind of hippie guy who's a vegetarian and med- meditates and mm-hmm. he gets drafted in the Marines mm-hmm. and all stuff. So I started getting interested in that sphere mm-hmm. of things. And then when I was uh, uh, working on this record pretty close to the truth mm-hmm. with Dusty Wakeman, I, my voice was starting to go on me. I was real hoarse. And I went by this newsstand And there was this Tai Chi magazine, and I saw this uh, ad in there for this workshop that weekend up in Oregon. So I went, and it was with this guy, George Hsu, who lives in San Francisco. He came over from China uh, in his 20s and started teaching Tai Chi and Xing Yi and Bagua, all these different styles. And uh, he had this elderly... Tai Chi master who didn't speak English. His name was Ma Hong, and he taught the Qin style Tai Chi, which was the earliest form of Tai Chi. And I just I looked at this guy and I thought, when I'm his age— I would, if I was half as strong as this guy, or if I could be half as strong as this guy now, I'd be doing good. So, I started going to these workshops that George would have. I was living in Los Angeles, and I'd go to San Francisco, and then he he'd have these camps up in La Honda, California, and every summer he'd bring over a different Tai Chi grandmaster from China, and he'd interpret. And um, a few years, he brought, uh, like, the same guy over and over. Like, uh, he brought this guy, Master Shin, who he nicknamed Chainsaw. And he <laughs> taught, teaches this, taught this style called Shin Yi, X-I-N-Y-I. Mm-hmm. And it kind of predated Tai Chi, and it's a fighting form, but it is just a great... Like the warm-up exercises of all these different styles, I'm real interested in and like to do. And uh, so anyway, uh, to make a long story interminable, <laughs> I I just got interested, and then George started having these camps in China, and I'd go there really, and uh, got into started getting interested in different types of qigong, and so I still do it, mm-hmm. and uh, I've been doing some online zoom classes when and you I'm, do
1: some at festivals as well sometimes well
2: you know when i when i go on those cruises uh-huh. in the mornings i teach a uh warm-up uh-huh. class uh-huh. you know because and i really enjoy it right you
1: know right kind of basic <laughs> things that you folks well let's move on to right? like your childhood uh, <laughs> troutman, north troutman north carolina troutman troutman Troutman, yeah. North Carolina. Troutman. I, 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 just for our listeners, where, where is it? Uh, yeah.
2: Troutman is near Charlotte. Uh-huh. It's right next to a place called Statesville. Uh-huh. I was born in Statesville. Okay. And a great, great town, sweet town. My dad was a, a preacher at the New Perth Associate Reform Presbyterian Church. My mom was the choir director. And I had have an older sister, Becky, who's a few years older. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just loved Troutman. Mm -hmm. And then we moved to Charlotte, which was a much bigger place. And uh, I hated to leave Troutman. eventually I started getting used to Charlotte Mm -hmm. and and loved it. And um, then we moved to a little town called Dew west south carolina nice. when i was 13 mm-hmm. and
1: my dad started working that's at not new college. newberry is it is- it's not too far yeah you know. <laughs> i think that of course there's newberry opera house Right. absolutely yeah so i think i've gone through Dew west i mean yeah, due, yeah right. you,
2: you um, could have mm-hmm. and um i uh there there's a college there erskine college mm-hmm. and when i was 13 I started getting interested in the radio station WARP and kind of started volunteering. And I ended up, you know, I'd substitute for people. They'd give me a slot. When you're 13. And, yeah. And so I was there till I was 16. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I got so many records, you know, that were second records and just kind of that kind of, you know, very, just very eclectic mm-hmm. stuff, you yeah. know, from Frank Zappa to lester flat and um then when i was 16 i went to chapel hill Mm -hmm. and finished high school at a place called carolina friends school Mm -hmm. and by that time is that an art
1: school no it
2: was a quaker high school and i kind of found it by accident Mm -hmm. and my folks let me go yeah yeah. Yeah, and so they let me go and it was a non-graded school, which was good for me because mm-hmm. I was just interested. You know, Robert, I was a precocious young man, always curious about, no, I'm kidding, about And you seem about to have things, lost but, all of that somehow. But I know, I know. Sadly, <laughs>
1: those were my salad days, the days of my youth. The, but, your, uh, your mom, with the choir director thing. Yes. Had a huge influence on your music, yeah. I'm sure, right? Yeah. yeah. And
2: and my dad had a great voice uh-huh. and his family. Uh, and they, they played a lot of music at the, the house. Like piano? And- well, she actually also taught privately piano. Uh-huh. And I guess I, it shows I had like, I couldn't concentrate though at an early age because I couldn't. Get I just couldn't do it. I couldn't make myself but play you the piano. The drums is that what? I Dr- drums were my first instrument, and then banjo, and then harmonica, and
1: uh-huh. dobro, and guitar. How did you fall into being uh, such a great fan of uh, Ralph Stanley or the Stanley Brothers?
2: <clears throat> well, when I was, gosh, I guess I was fourteen. Mm-hmm. I started, <clears throat> excuse me, realizing that bluegrass. I just really got bitten by that bug and realized that I'd heard it a lot in the background, even, you know, like in Troutman and uh, a different thing. There was a TV show in Charlotte called the Arthur Smith show on Saturdays. And <laughs> like he, the Wilburn brothers. Yeah, exactly. Kid. And and they they would have a bluegrass segment. And so it it was like, oh, oh, of course, this seems natural. And you know how it is sometimes when you hear a song that just, like, blows your way. And when I went to see the movie Bonnie and Clyde Ah. when I was a kid, when Foggy Mountain Breakdown Mm -hmm. came out, you know, it was just like magic.
1: The biggest hit for the banjo ever, right? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe bigger than Rocky Top, I
2: guess. Right, exactly. And then, you know, you realize it's like, oh, of course, you know, the Beverly Hillbillies theme and this kind of thing, you know. And so... Uh, I got a banjo. I think I was fifteen and and took a couple of lessons. I was working in the summers uh, before the flat rock. Do You remember know what kind of banjo? You know what? I think it was a harmony. It oh, was a they're pretty, pretty inexpensive, set. you know, mm-hmm. and um, and then I just started going on, you know, and and uh, they would have coffee houses at Erskine College and occasionally a bluegrass band would come through there was a band called chicken hot rod that was out of charlotte (laughs) and they came in and actually sarah seskin the singer songwriter her dad was in that band and um so you know just those little things you know how when you discover a musical form and you just kind of get eaten up with it oh and and my folks let me go to this bluegrass festival when I was 14 mm-hmm. called Union Grove, which was like a, this big bluegrass a, a festival real bluegrass. in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And so I went with some college students and, and uh, that really also was this big kind of mind-blowing thing to be around at this festival and just hear this bluegrass constantly. And um, I went back the next year, and I had a banjo by then. And um, we entered the contest where we got our, the $5 admission back just by entering. We didn't win. I, I met these guys that were just jamming, and we called ourselves the, ourselves the Minute Men. <laughs> and, uh, and I went, remember going outside. I had a cowboy hat, and, and, and I wasn't wearing a shirt and, uh, and we did this song that I kind of made up on the spot. It's ca- it was called, My Father's Name Was Robert E. Lee. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just kind of improvising this song. And, and anyway, but, you Can know. Can you still play that song either? I don't remember. Uh, it. <laughs> you hope not, but, uh, no. I guess, yeah. But we got our $5 back, mm. which was great.
1: Tell, let's talk about your process about going in the studio and making these records. Okay. that's really, really impressive, 34 records.
2: Um, oh, gosh, it's been a lot of different ways. Uh, the first record, I came to Nashville after I got out of college, um, back in those days when I decided not to be a mime. And, and I went up to uh, – I, I came to Nashville – And for about five months, and I wanted to hang out with George Jones and with Roland White, Ah, the great mandolin player. Would you later put out a record with him? Yes, and so I I was two. My roommates played with Wilma Lee Cooper, Mm -hmm. and so I'd get to go to the Grand Ole Opry every weekend. That's a blast. And that was like my fantasy Mm -hmm. to get to play at the Opry. And um, I did, I was two... uh, nervous about hanging out with george jones i saw him a few times and would you know say hello Mm -hmm. and kind of just stand around but i was just much too intimidated Mm -hmm. to hang out with him and uh but roland was so nice and uh we started singing together and he'd invite me to his gigs and i'd sit in. and
1: then this is after clarence was gone right yeah
2: oh yes Mm -hmm. yes this was 79 and um, uh, and I just loved the Kentucky Colonels yeah. and the White Brothers, those records with Roland and Clarence. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I loved the brother singing thing. And I'd gotten to see the Blue Sky Boys at a mm-hmm. festival in North Carolina at Camp Springs. They got back together after years and years. Carlton Haney brought them together. They had had this bitter mm-hmm. kind of falling out. And so it was just incredible to hear them sing. And I loved what Clarence and Roland sounded like, singing-wise. So um, as I was realizing things weren't gonna happen for me in Nashville, mm-hmm. uh, writing-wise, or you know getting a record deal, I decided to go to New York, uh, where I knew several people. That's where you got the Fets Dominum gig? That's right, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, And so Roland, before I left, said, hey, why don't we do a record together? So we did a record Mm -hmm. at at Earl Scruggs' basement. And it was the first kind of incarnation of Scruggs' sound, the recording studio Mm -hmm. that that, uh, uh, they had later. And um, Earl would come down sometimes, and he'd bring a tray of coffee uh, and serve with china and silver, uh, you know, a coffee server, and he'd be wearing an apron, and he'd hang around for a while and talk. And I was just as nervous as I could be because it was my first album. And at the same time, it's like this—I can't believe this is happening. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, anyway, we did that, and then I went to New York, and a guy named John Messler, who I'd met at uh, one of Roland's gigs, he lived in New Jersey and had this band called the Steel Angels. And they did a few Graham Parsons songs. Roland let them sit in mm-hmm. and do a few songs on their own, and I and so back then at least with Graham Parsons, when you'd meet somebody that said, "Oh, I love Graham Parsons," it was like there was this automatic uh-huh. bond, mm-hmm. you know. So I told John, I said, "I'm moving to New York. Do you know of any gigs?" And, and he said, yes, i I can, I'll talk to Hugh O'Lunny at this. He said, there's a country bar called O'Lunny's. And so he got me a solo gig, a fair amount, uh, playing in between the band sets. And so the first night I, I got there, there was Larry Campbell mm-hmm. playing steel guitar and fiddle and telly mm-hmm. with this guy, uh, uh, they called himself Freddie F- the Frogman. Uh, I can't remember his last name, but, but really good. And uh, so, and, and I always thought, my, and I thought right then, it's like someday I want to play with this guy, with Larry Campbell. But, and there was like this country scene up there, oddly enough, no, no, and I don't a lot it, of t- folks from Texas moved up there, and they had the Lone Star Cafe. At the they? Lone Star Cafe, and Buddy Miller, I met him there a few months later. Uh-huh. He had moved up, and so Floyd Domino, um, I would see him playing, and you know this incredible piano player, and had this band, the Floyd Domino Band, and uh, there was a guy, a great uh, singer and guitar player named Johnny Jake. And so I started subbing for him, and he he, he was doing the singing, and, and then he got more and more gigs. So I kind of moved in more to play with Floyd. Uh, but Tony Garnier was mm-hmm. on bass, who now plays with Bob Dylan right. for years. And Howie Wyeth was the drummer who played with the Rolling Thunder review. Whoa! And um, it was it was a great band,
1: and. Uh, so, uh, did you absorb some of the stuff that Fats Domino did, like musically, when you were playing? With I,
2: you? you know, I was had been listening to him, uh-huh. um, and uh, and so we did a few uh, Fats Domino tunes, and uh-huh. you know, we would do some Western swing and uh-huh. some straight ahead country, and uh, we always used to do Georgia on My Mind yeah. and um, some R and B stuff. You yeah, and so it was. It was great. And then um, there were these clubs. You know, you're talking about the Lone Star, City Limit, Sundown, Rodeo. And so I was in a band and had a band, and um, uh, also was in a bluegrass band called Charged Particles. It was a good bluegrass band. And um, and I my, did you
1: ever sleep during those days? Um,
2: i did i did some i did i did and um but uh i I had a day job i was a messenger at rolling stone magazine and worked in the mailroom. and i i thought too it's like i'm gonna this is this is and i was such a i I read rolling stone for years Mm -hmm. before that and so it was cool to and and the folks were nice to me and uh uh uh, i had a couple of bosses there was a lady judy Barahal. I, i meant judy lawrence and laurel gonzalez was the the head boss over us and she they they knew i was an aspiring musician and so occasional and we got to play my country band and actually larry played uh Steal and Fiddle. We got to play one of these Rolling Stone Christmas parties. Mm-hmm. Ah, <clears throat> that must have rented out stars upon stars. And that was thing. cool. That yeah. was really neat. And uh, and that was kind of a uh, fantasy because before I'd moved to New York, I saw this uh, article about the Christmas party and and all that stuff. And so I thought, Gosh, I'd love to go to that.
1: So, you got to know Buddy Miller, whom you do a show with um, XM, correct? Yes. It's on Outlaw Country. Mm-hmm. Right? And but I I've, I've noticed uh, that you forge relationships with people and you keep them. And some and some of it's like Buddy, where you're pals and do stuff. And then there's some people like Roland White, where you really honor them and tribute them later on, like you know Ralph Stanley and Roland White, where you I mean, so you you have some great loyalty to st- and. Just great way of keeping up with people. I just I was real impressed with. That. Well,
2: it's um, it it's been I've been real lucky that some people I've kind of mm-hmm. approached to work with in some ways have said yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> uh, and and speaking of which, so that what the thing going back to Roland right. when I moved to New York, I thought. This is it. I've done a record with Roland White, a duet record. You know, in a few months, I'll have a record deal. I'll start playing the festival. So I sent this cassette out to the Bluegrass record companies, and all of them, the ones that responded, the big ones, said, Hi, we like it, um, but you're an unknown, and we can't really, you know, you're not on the circuit and Here's you
1: know, reasons s- that we can't stick around, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's like stay in touch
2: mm-hmm. and that just crushed me, you know, and I was just thinking, well, I guess it's just did not meant to be. And so I focused more on the country thing. Mm-hmm. And um, so Buddy, and Buddy was such a great guy, you know, he, his band, the Buddy Miller Band, mm-hmm. I mean, it was like the tops. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it would have been the tops anywhere, mm-hmm. but, but, you know, being in New York city and it was exciting mm-hmm. to be up there. And you know, the Lone Star, it would, people would come up and a guy that lived in my building, Doc Pomus this great oh, oh my God. songwriter. He, last he, dance. Yes. Yeah, and he would go to the Lone Star like every night wow. and eat dinner there and watch the bands. And I talked to him a lot. He'd mm-hmm. sit in the lobby a lot. And, um, But I remember being
1: at the Lone Star. Now, you weren't intimidated by Doc Palmer. No, no.
2: I really wanted to write with him. Uh And then later, I finally got up the nerve to ask him. And he said, well, do you have a deal yet? And I said, no, I don't. And he said, well, I'm sorry, but I, I don't do... Speculative writing. And I said, Well, what's that? And he said, He said, I mean, I don't write with anybody else unless I have a deal. And I was like, Oh, shoot. And then finally, when I got a, another, my first mm-hmm. deal on Epic Records, he passed away.
1: Like, before the plant that and the Planet of Love record, just for our listeners, Doctor Palmas uh, wrote uh, "Save the Last Dance for Me." Viva Las Vegas, yes, Viva Las Vegas, huge, yeah. huge yeah. songs, and he was he was really up in New York all the time, yeah. Really. And they were kind of country songs, really, a lot of times, yeah. Mm-hmm. And just a, a, an amazing. He, he's never was in good health though, was he? No, he yeah.
2: had 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 polio, oh, I
1: see. and he was in a wheelchair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so and, Jim being the writer that he is, I mean, meeting Dr. Palmer, it must been some kind of, like Oh yeah. It a, a was lightning moment. It almost. was, really. it was inspiring. Yeah. yeah. yeah and, yeah. um, uh, and
2: when I'd go to the, I'd go to the Lone Star a fair amount. And, um, you know, I remember one time there was Billy Joe Shaver just hanging around, you know, just enjoy it. People would go to the Lone Star, you know, like the, especially a the Texas mm-hmm. artists. And uh, I remember one time Joe Ely was there and, you know, I kind of went up and was like, you know, kind of trying to make small talk. Super nice guys. Mm-hmm. And after I made a demo. I, I did a few songs first. Um, and then I got Floyd Domino and some guys to go in. And I uh, did this demo and Delbert came to town. And I, and I wanted to pitch it to Delbert. And so I went to the dressing room and... And he was just sitting, he was kind of collecting himself Mm -hmm. for the show, but he was very very calm and super nice, Mm -hmm. you know, and just said, hey, here's a cassette, you know. and and, I can't uh, can't imagine how intimidating that was. And I used to do that a Mm -hmm. fair amount, Mm -hmm. Um, like Gary Stewart. I I went to his show when I first finally got to see him, and I'd written this song with John Messler called Honky Tonk Hayes. all this
1: time you were writing, can we back up just a minute, ask you about, like, when you really started writing because – even by then, you really seemed to have some kind of uh, well, discography, an un- uncollected un- discography <laughs> under your belt. And
2: At the end of high school, I started writing a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then when I was in college, started writing more mm-hmm. and, um, uh, and kind of had in my mind that, well, gee, I'll, I've done a demo. And I did a demo in Charlotte, um, This One of my heroes, this guitar player named Zan McLeod, who I'd been in a... -A Z-A-N? Z-A-N, an incredible guitar player, and uh, there was a guy named Rick Boley who took me under his wing my my last two years of high school, and we kind of had a duo, sometimes Zan would play. So I did this demo, and then I thought, okay, I've got three songs... I'll probably have a record deal by, you know, this was like <laughs> November or something. I'll probably be touring the world this summer. Mm-hmm. You know, it'll be, I'll be yeah. doing that. Right. I'll have to leave college. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, so anyway, that all was.
1: Them, uh, dreams being a mime away. <laughs> right? and <they'll> take it. <laughs> I'll put that old banjo on the wall. <laughs>
2: But getting back to the the thing you were saying about oh and and also Buddy when I'd he whenever I'd go see him he'd very kindly always I'd say hi to him before the show and he'd he'd always say you want to get up and do a couple and I'd be like sure you know and man I, those were kind of depressing times in a lot of ways like because I'd feel like what am I doing nothing's happening. You know, and buddy that always just th- that thing of doing that really lifted my spirits and kind of gave me purpose right. in a lot of ways. And uh, and you know, just that guy John Messler that got me that gig at Olani's, that changed my life.
3: A man will live and make mistakes.
2: the job of loving you i've got the time to second guess i'll get by on less and less so many days to think it through i lost the job of loving you
0: we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with jim lauderdale shortly here at Americana Podcast, it is our goal to define and look at the songs that make Americana, Americana. With help from our fan-based historian and tasteful tastemaker, Will vote. this is Will's Pick. A Satisfied Mind, written by Joe Red Hayes and Jack Rhodes. In the music business, there's a time-honored tradition to categorize songs by genre. Songs can quickly get pigeonholed by tastemakers or industry players. Someone will say, that's a country song, or that's a pop song, and the label will probably stick. That said, there are always songs that defy this methodology. If a song can chart in more than one genre, it is known as a crossover hit. Occasionally, a song will cross over multiple genres. When that happens, you know it's a very special song. One such song is A Satisfied Mind, written by Joe Red Hayes and Jack Rhodes, two veteran songwriters. Rhodes was a producer and a songwriter with over 600 song credits. Rhodes also wrote Silver Threads and Golden Needles, as well as several early rockabilly songs that were covered by Gene Vincent. A Satisfied Mind went to number one on the Billboard Hot Country song list for Porter Wagner in 1955. With his nudie suits and his country pompadour, it would be hard to find an artist more country than Wagner. This was just the beginning for A Satisfied Mind in the country arena, as a veritable of who's who country stars including Willie Nelson, Gene Shepard, Farron Young, Johnny Cash, Randy Travis, and David Allen Coe proceeded to cut the song over the next 50 years. To this date, A Satisfied Mind has been covered by well over 50 artists in multiple genres. For this reason, and the fact that the lyrics ring just as true as they did over 60 years ago, it's Will's pick.
3: Money can't buy back your youth when you're old, or a friend when you're lonely, or a love that's grown cold, the wealthiest person.
1: Is- so the first <coughs> one is Planet Love. Yes. yes. And, and that then- was with Rodney. Rodney. Uh, with Rodney and And John Leventhal. Leventhal. Leventhal,
2: I'd been, I met Leventhal, John Leventhal in New York and he started also, I might, might mention, uh, um, uh, Steve Satterwhite, a, a friend of Tony Garnier's had a studio and there was a great piano player named Steve Gabori that would engineer. So, I started doing more demos at the studio, and Steve Satterwhite would give me free studio time. i just have to pay the musicians. That's and something. And so I would spend, and eventually I got some jobs leaving, like I was in this play playing banjo and guitar in a play called Cotton Patch Gospel, and then this show called Pump Boys and Dinettes, and then later this uh show called Diamond Studs and Sean Colvin, who i met with Buddy Miller, played my wife. I played Jesse James and I this,
1: didn't know she did theater.
2: Yeah, she did she did that show. Yeah. And and uh um the Red Clay Ramblers were were the, were the band were the gang. That, and that was in New York. That no, we it, it had been in New York. I, I saw it when I was in high school in yeah. Chapel Hill. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to play banjo in it, mm-hmm. but I got this job later and we did it in Cleveland. And there again I thought, okay, I'm yeah. in this show now, I'm gonna get a record deal. In Cleveland. You know, the, the record deal was the ultimate kind of mm-hmm. thing sure. you're always going for. Mm-hmm. So anyway, but it it didn't make yeah. it to New York or mm-hmm. LA or anything. So I was I would spend every dime about going to New York and doing demos, mm-hmm. paying the musicians, right. and uh, and John Leventhal and I. I started having him as a guitar player, and it was like, wow, this guy's an incredible guitar player, and he had all these ideas. He, he later did uh, the big record with uh, um, Sean and Cash. Yeah. Right, Roseanne Cash? Yes, yeah. Roseanne, yeah. yes. Right, and right. Uh, they ended up getting married mm-hmm. later. Right. And um, so John uh, called me one time when I was living in LA, said, I'm going to be in town, you want to write. So we started writing, and then I'd go to New York and do demos at his place, and I was like, damn, this guy's. In-
1: incredible so the quality producer. of the demo i mean
2: seems- his guitar tone just his mm-hmm. taste it mm-hmm. was just mm-hmm. amazing so eventually we did this record planet of love and rodney and so where did you do planet of love on warner brother no Reese. no wh- oh in, well we in cleveland he no 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 this was after cleveland this was a, okay. after that i moved to la moved to la and um uh and I was living there for several years, and, um, but I'd commute kind of to Nashville, uh-huh. and eventually I started spending so much time here and doing so many demos with this guy named Tim Coates at this studio called Mad Dog uh-huh. that eventually I rented a place above Buddy Miller Ah. And, uh, right. and, uh, Julie. yes. Right. And, uh, and so I, and eventually gave up the place in LA.
1: But so when you were in LA, you, the, so Leslie, let, let me be specific. Plan of Love was recorded in LA? No, no. In uh, Nashville.
2: In Nashville okay. and some in New York. And it was some on overdirt. Epic? No, that, see the Epic thing with Pete Anderson, sadly, it went went and it was like a, <laughs> it was, it was like kind of a modern Bakersfield Mm -hmm. style was, was um, uh, Maria McKee. And 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 see in LA after moving around and stuff, when I got there, it was this real welcoming Mm -hmm. scene and gosh, Lucinda was there, Rosie, Chris Gaffney, Dale Watson. I mean, it was just this great buddy ended up moving down Mm -hmm. and the Palomino was in full swing and it was just, Great, really on fire, and um, and so it was a real cool place to write and uh, um, and just be and go to other people's gigs, to your own gigs. So after a few records, um, I did, and and I, I was starting to, I got a record deal with um, RCA, yes. and so I, I wanted to do our just real. There was this kind of gray area at that time of like
1: we're talking about what year?
2: Um, that must have been about ninety five or six. I started working on the record or oh, got Battle the of deal. Love. No, no, Planet of Love came out in ninety one. Yeah, I right. Believe. Yeah. Can so, I stop you
1: right there? I just want to ask you. Of course,
2: anything. Okay. Nothing's okay. too personal. So that,
1: well, no. Uh, Planet of Love was the first record that uh, Bleach Team sent me and he's that's always super excited you know jumping up and down and um you know uh that uh, king of broken hearts and um it, uh, to me it it really reflects so many things about you and about your musical ability and your lyrical ability and uh although it, you know it's it's a, it's a you know pretty straight ahead not too hallucinogenic Kind of lyric and no, everything, not too. Not, no, 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 but not it's, that. it's 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 no. really beautiful. And also, you do something that I just I've always admired. I just don't even know where that comes from. But you have this great, uh, and I wish I had better musical knowledge. But it, you have this great stair step way of getting to like the word, and it, it's mm. like here here are the words, and and melodically you stair step all the way, and like you're stepping two or three. Steps on the stairs instead of like hitting every deal and you're going boom, boom 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 like that. And it's like how does he do that? Oh my god, this is so great. And and uh and so and so the King of Broken Hearts has been recorded like over and over.
2: Um, let's see, George Strait did it, and that
1: and got Leanne me Loma my first
2: Leanne Loma. and uh, uh Mark going. Chestnut.
1: So this comes to this this is comes to this. To me, as far as a songwriter goes, you are great singers songwriter i mean you are someone who puts these notes together that are unusual and really great singers are always looking for kind of a challenge i mean if they're really great they're going to look for a challenge and they they want to do that and you create songs and i I don't know how many cuts you have at this point but you you got jillions of them and you create songs that great singers love to sing well good Uh, i I do not think so here Uh, i just i'm just curious
2: I don't know Robert I <laughs> I can't I can't judge those things Go ahead
1: and try all- Does that come all the way back from, like, your mom and yes. your, your yeah. childhood? Is yeah, that, I think that, so. Some of those things you absorb when you are a child and were able to, like, this is how, let's make this a little more complex.
2: No, it's just, it just it I don't think out. about that, okay, right. you know. And I think that as a kid, as a younger kid, like pre-Beatles, certain songs would just really excite me, mm-hmm. like hearing, like, um, <laughs> that I care. I don't know what folk group it was that did uh, the Cotton Fields back home. Oh, right. you know, but I just, la- it was on the radio. I loved it. I love this Andy Williams song called Can't Get Used to Losing You, which later I found out that Doc Palmas was the lyricist yeah. on it. But, um, and then my, you know, just various things, kind of ear training, listening to things, singing along mm-hmm. with records. And then when the Beatles came along and I didn't, Think about this till later, but that kind of, you know, was such a huge thing for the world. Mm-hmm. And I think musically, for me, after hearing different things, it was like this great ear training, also to hear their harmonies and their melodies and lyrics and stuff. And it just kind of, uh, you know, fell into place for us. Right. You know what I mean? It was right. such an, a perfect. Mm-hmm. Thing, right. musically
1: right so that bounced back to up to, to the planet of love where like that was that was the early um examples of of like how you you make such wonderful melodies
2: it just those are the things that come out more mm-hmm. easily for mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. lyrics take more effort yeah. you know mm-hmm. and that's why it was, some, I've, I've gotten to work with some great lyricists. Mm, um, like Robert Hunter. Robert Hunter, uh, Frank Dykus, Clay mm. Blaker. Mm. Um, guys who will hand you a lyric sheet uh-huh. that you go, at, and then in the best case scenario, when a lyricist hands me that, I look at it, and a melody really? will just come out. Fantastic. And then I, I put it down. One time, Frank Dykus called me, and I was in L.A., and and, oh, right. and and he said i gotta i gotta smash and he and i said really what is it i said hold on and so i got my tape cassette player at the time and so he would read mm-hmm. something and then like a verse and i go and, and then i'd sing it and then I'd, and they go all right here's the course and so then i would do the course and so and in that best case scenario or robert hunter would mm-hmm. give me a lyric and how that and also getting back to that um the opportunity to yeah. help somebody through it is after you know so the it it really had always bummed me out that I didn't get that record deal for the yeah. uh Roland White record yeah. And then my major label deals just you know were the disappointing. La- you the know Jim,
1: Jim Lauderdale effect.
2: Because that's right, yes. the Jim. It's kind of like the Manchurian Candidate. <laughs> that's a phrase people should use, like when somebody's record doesn't do anything. They should call it that. The Jim Lauderdale explain, effect.
1: Explain the Jim Lauderdale effect. I've got but, to hear uh, somebody, some, some kind of kind of note here. I think, but um, this. It just cracks me up because you became a thing. Um, all right. Oh, here it goes. Phenomenon. The term, the Jim Lauderdale phenomenon, oh. coined by singer-songwriter Kim Ritchie, cited in the April 2000 article in the and by writer Peter Cooper, is ironic reference to the fact that Lauderdale was nominated for a Grammy for his work with Stanley, but was released from a record deal with RCA not long after.
2: Well, that's the Jeff <laughs> phenomenon,
1: <laughs> and, then it, and, it, and it affected uh, uh, you know just scores of other great, great artists at the time. And then th- th- this was basically what Kim was saying. It was like this happened to you, and it was really happening all over. And people were doing great stuff, getting huge cuts, and doing great records. And the records just you know it was like that cartoon one time I saw I, uh, saw it where the guys. Uh, looking in the trash can he's holding up a cassette tape and he's going going yeah I was just looking at your cassette tape (laughs) (laughs) well
2: you know it's it's funny how that works and and every time and things have changed mm -hmm. for all of us recording wise since then but back in the day it was like the ultimate thing was to have a major record label deal I mean that was the real goal and um and so, but they all, none of them, because I didn't have the country radio airplay, mm-hmm. didn't take off. I kept saying,
0: Come on, let's go. You started learning what you don't need
3: to know, where the sidewalk ends and the road begins. I wait for you in a cold, dark.
1: So the cover on Planet of Love, and no shirt, right? And and I, <laughs> I'm so, I'm so, I have to bring I have to bring this up, Jim. I mean, because this hey, listen, is listen. That's this, okay. It as was painful like, as these so things I are, the guy, I don't want to. Uh, so I asked the guy who was the uh, you know second in command at somewhere a big label, and I said, "Man, don't, this record's so great. What's what's going on with him?" And he goes the shirt deal man that's it uh the story you're kidding you you're like put an anchor on that record but they made they made
2: me use that cover
1: they did they made me use that cover at at the end of artistic artistic at the
2: the end of a photo. and listen i don't mean any disrespect to Mm. any of those people at all because as i'll say later all of that has a good oh, that comes man. out of it but and we all do it, what we at, do at, at the end of this photo shoot i i jokingly said hey let me I'll, i'm gonna i'll take my shirt off her i mean very very jokingly it weird how and, jokes and actually <laughs> and actually see there'd been a photo shoot before mm-hmm. and i like these pictures i chose them but then the label because they put that record on ice for about nine months because they were test marketing this Mm. song as a pop single. Mm. Which one was that? Maybe. Uh And my publisher, very wisely, Brownlee Ferguson, very wisely pointed out, he said, it ain't gonna happen. I'm sorry, but you're gonna be up against like Prince, Madonna, Madonna, these people for pop radio airplay, it's not going to happen. I don't know why they're doing this. And I was like, well, I, I guess I better do what they plan. And so so anyway, all this time went by, and then they said, you know what, we think you ought to cut your hair a little bit because I had really long hair. And they said, and we want to do another photo shoot. And I was like, I don't know. And they were kind of like, well, mm. I think you'd better mm. – so it's kinda of like, all right. So at the end of that shoot when I jokingly did that, then they chose this cover and I looked at it and I was like, no, no, I I, that, I can't do this. I said, how about this other shot? Mm-hmm where I'm standing in the doorway and I'm mm-hmm. kind of laughing and, mm-hmm. and there's this picture of Hank senior and mm-hmm. both see Cef- like as a baby. And it's like, we can have the door open and it's going to be all these planets and mm-hmm. do this logo and everything. They're like, no. And so it's, I, I, I can't get into too much of like who said what, I, I but they made And so I finally said, and, and, but the, the deal was, it's like, you can either use this, or we can wait another five months and mm-hmm. we'll do another photo shoot. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, no, no. Because
3: mm-hmm.
2: it had been held for so long. Mm-hmm. So um, I said, I'll tell you what. Can you make it look like I've got a T-shirt on? And at that time, too, they said, well, no, because you'd have to stand there in the exact pose with a black T-shirt and then we'd have to cut that on superimpose, mm-hmm. and, and then... Finally, they said, "I'll tell you what. We can make it look like with with these shadows." And I said, "Okay, great. Do that." Mm-hmm. So it's supposed to look like I have a tank top on, mm-hmm. and they and I was like, "I don't know. This still looks like I don't have a shirt." And it's like, <laughs> "No, no, it doesn't. No, it looks like you have a shirt." And I said, "I'm gonna be so embarrassed. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever." So that's like nobody is going to know. Because so this when, is when one I, of your
1: first first real right. record coming so out. So
2: when I saw my dad right, right. and he got it, he said, yeah, how come you're not wearing a shirt <laughs> on that? And I was like.
3: <laughs>
2: so anyway, you know, I, I the, the part of this thing was, you know, when you're, uh, you know, this was, I, I was so glad to get these sure. record deals. Yeah. And so you, I definitely wanted to go along with what I thought well what are my choices mm-hmm. you know your choices are few in that so situation. anyway so someday I do want to re-release that record and maybe get find the original stuff mm-hmm. you know but uh, but, it, the, but the, the music itself is the music solid. so yeah. sadly yeah. you yeah. know the yeah. um, the music yeah that's and, Wake and up I, screaming is yeah, on yeah, it, and, and Gary, I, I love king of, king of broken hearts yeah. I ended up getting 8 cuts out of it including (laughs) king King of broken hearts and where the sidewalk ends Mm -hmm. so as depressing as things were with the record Mm -hmm. when george Strait uh cut those two songs put them in pure country it's like oh oh that's awesome now i and and now i kind of have this accidental career as a songwriter for other people right so people would keep cutting
1: things mm-hmm. off of my albums so that was a true and, lightning uh, moment actually in, yeah. the, in the weirdest way right yes. not, not I, intentional I hadn't planned it yeah he's walking through a lawn
3: he talks
2: to angels and the stars
3: He's
2: so sad and wise. and um, so with every record deal I had um, like that, something good mm-hmm. came out of it. Mm-hmm. E- either um, like uh, the first record on RCA, which also, I, I, it's called Whisper. And I, I had said, okay, this is an unmistakably country, country record. Very traditional. Mm-hmm. You know, I want—I don't want there to be any mm-hmm. question out there. It's either going to be too country for them mm-hmm. or not, but I did that. And that's where uh, I met Ralph Stanley, mm-hmm. who I'd seen many times doing this TV show, Ricky Skaggs, Live at the Ryman. Mm-hmm. And so Patty, I did Halfway Down, and Patty Loveless came out and did it. So I approached Ralph about I said, I'm going to be doing a record for RCA, and I'd love to write something for you mm-hmm. and the Clinch Mountain Boys to close the record. So he agreed. And then uh, through, I'd sit in with him a lot. And then at Merle Fest, the first time I went, uh, his son was sick, and so Ralph, they said, Hey, you've
1: got to fill in. So ah. that was this amazing and he's in his catalog, right? I mean, as far as I've seen Fairly. I had to good. brush
2: up because I'd always sung Ralph's tenor parts, okay. never mm-hmm. Carter's lead parts. Yeah. But then I got the, the uh, guts to ask Ralph, It's like, hey, would you like to do a whole record? And he said, Okay and so i called our friend rob bleetstein and i said listen this is way uh, way out, way out there but d- could you somehow hook me up with robert hunter mm. to write so some rob stuff for this record so rob <laughs> hooked secret me up thing, another uh, thing uh, yeah, no, that which that which totally changed my life yeah. you know mm-hmm and um so and then robert came to nashville
1: for so a just like, let me stop you for a second yeah the uh so for everyone uh, listening uh, uh, robert hunter was the the lyricist for the grateful dead or uh, or what is it music and lyrics? Uh, for for basically, anything that Jerry Garcia sang is, is right. Robert Hunter, Hunter's word words, Pretty right? much, unless it was a And I also believe that um, Tom Russell credits him with like going from driving a cab in New York to back playing music. That's right. Yes. He picked him up. Yeah, a, picked him up yeah. accidentally and, and Tom said something about it. Yeah I, I, yeah, I write songs and then Hunter said, well, you know, give me one. And he sang Gallo de Cielo and... Robert Hunter said, "You got to get out of this cab, man, and Isn't that <laughs> go wild? back to music." right? Yeah. So back to uh, the, the plan of love and getting the cuts and mo- moving on, and then Ralph Stanley. Ralph Stanley. Uh, and you uh, started singing Ralph's parts. Yeah. They're, just so everybody knows uh, the Stanley brothers originally were, uh, I'm, uh, over East Tennessee, or it was in North Carolina, Virginia, Virginia. Okay. So, yeah. so uh, they if, uh, like. Oh brother, where art thou? The uh, original version of "Man of Constant Sorrow" was right. a, was a, was a Carter Stanley, Ralph Stanley uh, song, and they were just stalwart under under Bill Monroe. They were the kings of, of, of bluegrass for many many years, and just uh, and well, it's was, it were was flattenscroggs, but yeah. um, they were like, they were seriously authentic. Oh is yeah, what I always loved about the whole yeah. thing, you know. So um, this became. I feel like singing today, or was that? Late? Yes, that was the first record yeah, we so, did. So yeah. I want to just tell you, joy, joy, joy kills me. I just think it's like the I, if I were going to get married again, I, and I, I wanted to have an I'd want to have an upbeat song to be do it, and that I just think. Wow, that is like such great praise for the your person mm. that you pick, and it's so singable and fun. And I just, ah, like, oh, I, I listened to it. And that was
2: the first song but, Robert Hunter and I wrote. Is he, that right? he wrote those lyrics for oh, his no wife yeah, Maureen? So he he at that time I didn't know how to email Robert. That was. <laughs> Yeah. but mind you, well, this you was back in 1996. <laughs> yeah, well, can you show me you after know? the show? But he he like. sent, he he faxed me. I had a uh-huh. fax me. Faxed me the lyrics. Uh-huh. I wrote a melody on a cassette and overnighted him to him, and so that's what how cool we thing. we wrote until he came to Nashville, and and then we wrote in person, uh-huh. and gosh, wrote about 33 tunes, which later became. Uh, a record called headed for the hills i used 13 of them but then we a few years later i did kind of a uh country rock record called patchwork river mm-hmm. and then we did a couple of bluegrass records that he wrote the lyrics to mm-hmm. and then um
1: so he came here and with you. He, he that
2: he, first time and then i started going out to uh, la i mean to uh, san, san, rafael. san rafael and then um for the the first bluegrass record we did, the the total one, which a great producer named Randy Coors produced, mm-hmm. great dobro player and producer, and so I'd been on tour with Elvis Costello. He had he put together this kind of a bluegrass acoustic- hardly
1: strictly, probably yes, okay. yes. Mm-hmm.
2: And so we, uh, did this record with him called the secret profane and the sugar cane and then toured a lot. And then a bunch of a record called national ransom. And, um, it was Jerry Douglas and Mike Compton and Stuart Duncan and, uh, great Dennis crouch. Um, Mm. and, uh, so that was this i'd always loved elvis and still do so Mm. much he's Mm. just amazing but when i got back from that first tour and we'd been in europe i was just kind of bummed for some reason i think it was kind of a letdown to Mm. you know come down so i started sending robert these Melodies and then boom, you know, like half an hour later, hour later, he'd really send me back this lyric. So that so it went the, both ways with the alt writing.
1: Yes, he'd send me a lyric, he could do the melody. You yes. send him a melody
2: and he'd do the lyric. Yes, yes. and yes. and then he liked that record a lot, Reason and Rhyme. And uh, I went out to his 70th birthday. His uh, Maureen had invited me out, it was kind of a surprise party. And um, and he said, "Man, we got to do a follow up." And I said, "Well, shoot, I was gonna leave tomorrow, but I'll stay another day." And we wrote like five the first day, and the second day wrote about three, and then I split. <laughs> and then in the studio, I sent him. I'm sure you've written
1: one I was pretty proud of that. <laughs>
2: but he, we wrote very quickly when it worked, you know. And I've Not, uh, I've still found uh, recently some old lyrics that uh-huh. I'll, I'll do that, that. Occasionally he'd give me a lyric. that's like, shoot, nothing's coming yet. Mm-hmm. You know? So the so. Stanley records, I feel like seeing that ended up winning a Grammy. Yeah, it got nominated. nominated and then the next record I did with him called lost in lonesome pines uh-huh. that did get one. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and, and, uh, so your relationship with Ralph was pretty solid. I mean, Yeah. Y'all get along. Pretty yeah. Good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, so can we just move on to anything? I I got I got to go talk ahead. about pretty close to the truth. Sure. So for uh, for our listeners um uh, I, I again I think Bleatstein sent me pretty close to the truth.
2: 6 I, degrees I, of Rob Bleatstein.
1: Yeah, I know that Here you go. there you go. So the so uh and Dusty Wakeman Dusty. did that Did you ever do anything with Dusty again? That was it? Uh yes, uh, we did
2: a record out at pioneer town Uh at next a few doors down from pappy and harriet's Uh and dusty had a place called rim rock ranch up the hill Uh and i'd go out there and write a lot Uh when i was living in la and then after i moved even i'd go out there and write and um so we rented there was a sound stage that roy rogers and gene autry had built to do they did they they created Pioneer Town. It was mm-hmm. like a Western movie set ah, see, town. Yeah, yeah. And Pappy and Harriet's is still running. It's a bar that was started by Pappy and his wife Harriet, who at, had a family. Is this like no, Valley it's or it's in like, Yucca Valley. Yucca Valley uh, towards yeah. Joshua Tree. Right,
3: yeah. Oh, yeah. I
2: so, think I've been to Pappy and Harriet. I bet yeah, you yeah, have. Yeah. And so we rented the soundstage and Dusty uh, got this mobile. T- recording to truck and and it it went in there and we did and I we had a great a&r guy tom carolyn mm-hmm. and so he approved it and um uh gosh on that record is buddy and and uh greg lease the late donald lindley dusty produced it steve barber on that piano. was that was uh, Every Second Counts. And that's the, that's the title of that. Right? And, that and then, sadly, count. with with record company shifting around, and uh-huh. Tom uh, couldn't, they kind of took his power away on that mm. record. And so nothing happened with that. Mm. And so
1: You mean the record didn't come out? It did come it out, did
2: come yeah, out okay. but very, you know. She don't come at all. She's meaner yet than me. I died, I died. Don't.
3: To begin the cruiser heart is really mine With the left hook to the chin
1: move on by that time you have some records under your belt and yeah. you know you're kind of like on the train at that time and just putting putting out records what, every six months or something I mean, no at like, that you point 34 records in a career well you know
2: since my teenage years yeah. thinking it's like gosh i want a record yeah. deal i want a bluegrass record yeah. deal it's a banjo player whatever and then it evolved and then it's because it and it seemed like that's what I was placing mm-hmm. all my importance and my identity of like I'm nobody unless I have a record deal kind of thing or and um finally, see when Planet of Love came out and I guess I was 34 or something like that, I felt like, okay, finally, you know, I'm have some validation or right. something, but then these, cuts things would start happening it's like well sorry we've decided not to mm-hmm. keep you type thing but then the cuts mm-hmm. but I kept wanting to do records and so I would I just kept doing records so, kind of like I it
1: was just like I, I don't care how these fall I just want to just keep exactly
2: you know yeah. and the, the funny thing is that when I'm in the studio mm-hmm. a lot I remember on so many records I'd be like like with Tim Coates, I'd be like, you know what? I don't care if anything happens with this record. Just the process mm-hmm. of it has been so great. It's so just is been that how you went, and, in- and then though, when mm-hmm. the record comes out and yeah. not and doesn't do anything, it's like,
1: oh, it still stings, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it still stings. Uh, so, did is that how you went into uh, making the record with, with Don the Buffalo?
2: Oh, now that I actually, uh, when Lucinda did her. I had sung on several of her records. The first one? Uh, the no, the, she did that a couple. Me... Oh, she did the Sweet Happy Woman Blues and then oh, the one with Dusty and, and uh, Girf. And then that third one, uh, they had me sing oh. Harmony. So I was on a few of those records. Uh-huh. And then... Um, Car Wheels Uh was sang on that, and when Lucinda would play, Grammy nominated, oh yeah,
1: won a Grammy, yeah,
2: Yeah. and uh, she when she'd play, you know, in those early days, you know, at at the Anti Club or or rather uh, Raji's or or uh, uh, the Palomino, she'd always also kindly say, "You want to sing a few with me?" You know, so I got this thing of, of singing harmony with her that I just loved to do so much. And um, so then when Car Wheels came out, she said, would you sing harmonies in the band and you can open up the shows like solo. Okay. So I did that on that Car Wheels tour. And um, uh, and your question, oh, you were just asking about Lucinda, but that's, yeah. <laughs> we, we, you know, met in the 80s or now. But I, I was asking about Don the Buffalo. Oh, oh. the Donna Donna, Buffalo that's Rosa, right. is a band Dona, that,
1: uh, that uh, I think in Rhode Island, right? Uh, upstate Ithaca, uh, New York okay, Ithaca area. New, and, yeah. and and the word on their t- title there was they were they were going it was like some kind of long all night thing about how you know what deal uh, they were going for Dawn of the, of buffalo, the buffalo, and yeah. they ended up with Dawn of right. the Buffalo, which is a great band. They're just they the most awesome. rhythmic, coolest, fantastic. They
2: are so great. Yeah, yeah. You got folks. You got to check them out, Dawn of the Buffalo. Oh, yeah. And so what happened was, we, and that's that. That's right. You, you're asking how I met him and huh? and uh, we were uh, with Lucinda at the Newport Folk Festival, oh. and so after our set. I looked over and there was this, you know, I could tell they were in a band, mm. and it was just these happy folks. This group of people just, and there was something about them that just attracted me so much. And I went over and started talking to them. They said, "Oh yeah, we played like at noon or something." Mm. I was like, "Shoot, didn't hear you." And um, and then Jeb. Uh, you know, we exchanged numbers and everything. Jeb is the
1: singer? Yeah,
2: he's he and Tara Nevins, Jeb her ear, mm-hmm. and Tara Nevins are the two singers. And so, see, they started out as an old timey mm-hmm. band, like a string band. Like band. doing string band yeah. stuff. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of evolved into that and into Electric. And then they're really interested in Zydeco. So, mm-hmm. they spent a lot of time so in Lafayette. Mm-hmm. So, they just really have absorbed. So much and gone on so far, and rock and and Tara is an amazing fiddle player too, mm. and Jeb is an an amazing guitar player, mm. and
1: I so just, you just I love so, so. What when
2: happened was, yeah, we I think it was Merle Fest that they said hey they would pair people up and it's like, okay, on this hillside show, you'll do a few songs with Donna the Buffalo. So I, I did, and we just kind of, and then they invited me to their festival that they still have. It's called the Finger Lakes Grassroots Festival. And it's really? up in Trumansburg, North Carolina. I mean, Trumansburg, New York. It's in a great summer, festival. And the, they're just amazing. So what happened was we um, just kind of hit it off and I'd sit in with, and also at a festival, uh, down at the uh, Spirit of Sewanee Park at Live Oak. They, oh, I've, been that, I've that Yeah, you've played there. And, oh, yeah. And um, and so we would kind of, you know, they'd have me sit in, or, or and, it, and it became a thing where I'd do a whole set with them. Mm-hmm. And I started coming up with these melodies, and I would just kind of improvise these lyrics. Mm-hmm. But eventually we got enough stuff where uh, – we went in at a studio up in Ithaca and then also down at uh, Moondog Studios with Tim Coates here in Nashville mm-hmm. and uh, recorded what became a, an album. Mm-hmm. Wait till spring, wait till spring, mama said that's when it starts to swing. Wait till spring, wait
3: till spring, that's when they really start to sing.
1: So let's let's just move on up to you know where you are now. What you what you what's coming up for you?
2: Well, it's like I say. I think this um, I think this next thing will be a country record, uh-huh. and um, uh, and I've written a that? lot You're of do it that here in Nashville. Yeah, I've right. been. I've I've got a some things that I'll, you know, compile. Do you have a solid
1: and, core of people that you work with these days. Um.
2: A fair amount these last few years, uh, I have been uh, lucky to uh, work at this at the Blackbird Studios here in Nashville, um, and they have this program, the Blackbird Academy, where they teach engineering, and so I started. Uh, I started. Um, working there several years ago mm-hmm. and just really, and I, I've continued to do that and, and it's kind of a, I've really enjoyed like kind of at, at the end when you do your vocals later, kind of like telling telling the students like, listen, you know, here's this is, let's kind of play this scenario out. you know, you've never seen me before. I'm a client. You know, here's how you Mm. interact with them. This is what I personally Mm. has helped me with engineers and Mm. this kind of thing. And um, a guy that's been playing bass a lot with me for over 20 years, Jay Weaver, Mm. when I first went into the Blackbird Academy and I took uh, a bunch of the guys I've been on the road with and, uh, you know, I just kind of started throwing stuff down. And then Jay started contributing so much, I said, hey, would you co-produce this stuff with me? Because also, too, I'm a real Luddite. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I don't know my way. You know, I can turn on and off a light switch, turn on my uh, phone and record melodies in my Mm -hmm. phone. But Jay knows his way around the studio technically, and he just has great ideas, too, so it's kind of like a, a lab in a way for us musically. And so um so you know, a little so, bit
1: more experimental sometimes. Yeah, yes.
2: That. You know, a lot of times producers find folks they love to work, like Buddy Miller mm-hmm. does that, T Bone, Burnett does that. And, and and you know, there's like a you you develop this kind of bond with these guys and no, it's, it's like t- hey for this session right. i'll get so-and-so for mm-hmm. this one so uh and and i really like sometimes you know you're mentioning about the steel for instance yes. or telly mm-hmm. it's like um i like to go play you know yeah. you know yeah. that <laughs> and um back at moondog studio and so What happens with these sessions is that it's like, okay, I've got this session coming up. I've got to come up with something. Uh You know, I I, a lot of times have to work under a little bit of pressure. I understand. And several years ago, it was a fantasy of mine, and I'd met James Burton, and I'd recorded some with Al Perkins, and he used to play with me in L.A., and Mm -hmm. then he moved to Nashville. So it's like, gosh, these guys play this iconic stuff on Graham Parsons records. I want to try to get Ronnie Tut and Glenn D. Harden. And um, we were working at Gary Talent, it was his studio, Mad Dog. So he right. came in. So I did this record and also uh, several Robert Hunter songs mm-hmm. that were on Patchwork River. But it's like, I, I want to write for these guys you know what i come up with is for these Mm -hmm. players Mm -hmm. and so that is that's kind of how it was too with dawn of the buffalo Mm -hmm. and you know it's it's kind of like you're channeling people Uh, so
1: talk about the record that's coming out what's going on in front of you here
2: um i think i'm gonna call it game changer it's one of the songs i wrote on there and uh uh Craig Smith does this incredible B bender mm-hmm. solo. And um he there are only a few guys that can write like Marty Stewart, Bernie So why Ledden. don't you just call
1: it on, on a bender?
2: That's not a bad <laughs> that's not a bad uh bad title yeah, right there. there. <laughs> um and so it's it's kind of it'll start off with this song called that kind of life that kind of day and it's another steel Mm -hmm. guitar lick Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know i just i love coming up with those licks Mm. and um there's one uh uh, I wrote with Mary Gaucher mm-hmm. and uh, Jamie Harris mm-hmm. called "We're All We've Got," and it's kind of a ballad mid-tempo, but it, it's kind of a message song about, "Hey, listen, we're we're all we have mm-hmm. each other," mm-hmm. you know, because this, you know, things are just so. I
1: think that's a thread through your lyrics all the way
2: from the beginning. Sometimes, yes, you know, but... and and the the record "Hope" I put mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm was one, was my pandemic record it's like gosh we you know we need hope more than anything Seriously. you know you know i find myself sometimes like getting so overwhelmed by what's going on out there in the world it's like mm-hmm. really hope is there is there what's the point but mm-hmm. then it's like no you have to mm-hmm. you know if you believe you're always right you're and
3: oversight Nobody's right that much of the time If you got all the answers Who's asking all the questions No one can get a word in edgewise Listen,
1: listen, listen I just want to uh, ra- wrap it up with this uh, Jim Gossard uh, we here at Americana Podcast are always trying to expand and define uh, the term Americana. So, can you give us your best shot on that?
2: Well, I I think the best way to describe it, it's just American roots music, and it is anything that falls under that umbrella, whether it's it's folk, mm-hmm. uh, uh, blues. Mm-hmm roots rock tr- country uh bluegrass singer songwriter
1: and you've been you've seen a lot of because you have hosted those awards it's I used a, to do that yeah, yeah, yeah. for 15 years yeah. 15 years yeah well, how do you I mean you obviously do like hosting because you love the stage but I mean that that's a different angle
2: you know what it's funny because that and like the buddy and Jim show mm-hmm. and and just other things. A lot of those big things for me were just totally unplanned. You know, like mm-hmm. they asked me to do it, and so I did it. And mm-hmm. and so I really, really enjoyed it. How long it have
1: been, this has the Buddy and Jim show been going on?
2: Uh, I think mm, this is our ninth year, maybe? Ninth year. Yeah. Ninth, it, it, ninth or tenth, Yeah, I have
1: maybe. to say, I don't want, want to be remiss on missing this part. But uh, Buddy, um, I don't really know Buddy very well, but I do I have so much admiration for him because he's one of the greatest – interpreters of other people's songs. He He really is. That's why I came to Memphis, right? Yes. And then Showman's Life. Yes. Oh my God. (laughs) These are such Uh, great songs. And then he just nails them so hard. It just it's like they're just you know they just sort of usurp any other version of them. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah.
2: He really puts his mark I I'm just so grateful to Buddy and he's and I'm, and I'm yeah. an amazing human being. And
1: I'd like to make one other point. This is kind of... We're going backwards a little bit. Sorry. Uh, um, the, the, we're going, <laughs> so w- another point is, um, I, you know, I listen to the covers uh, of, of your songs that are out there. I listen to them. And I want to say um, that cover that... And I'm not really sure. I know your version of it. But the cover of Halfway Down that Patty Loveless for me she does the closest interpretation of you without being you and she just it's like full-blown on the floor it's fantastic so great yeah and uh that's a cool song and
2: i've never actually recorded that one i mean released it Uh or you don't seem to miss me that she did with Uh george jones Uh i uh yeah, haven't put those out. But that, gosh, I'm. Yeah. Did you? I love we, we were pretty her. happy when, she, when oh, you heard that version. Yes. Right. But, yeah. Yes. She's really
1: just screaming it.
2: It's she really does. Music. And and George Strait, yeah. man, too. Oh I, yeah. I really, you know, really, between George Strait and Patty Loveless, I owe my yeah. career to mm-hmm. those guys to be able to keep making independent records mm-hmm. because of them. Mm-hmm. You know, because there was wasn't any money in the record deals I had. Mm-hmm. I'd lose money mm-hmm. eventually you know and and so that
1: that kept me going we have been talking to jim lauderdale uh, uh here in nashville tennessee uh probably the uh S- swiss army knife of uh of americana he's the uh, icon of americana he's he's the uh, uh Joan Rivers of Americana, <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, it's just been a super. It's been a pleasure. Well, I, thank I you so really, much. Robert. Really enjoyed it, and it's uh, and you're a real hero of mine. And well, I'm likewise. Just, I'm so, I think that I uh, 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 I hope we get together again sometime I do soon. Too. And best of luck with all your thank records, you. and uh, we'll uh, we'll see you down the road. Okay. Thanks.
0: At this time, we would like to thank our host, Robert Earl Keene, and our guest, Jim Lauderdale. Americana Podcast is brought to you by Keene Productions, edited and produced by Clara Rose, with original music by Kim Warner. Until next time, let the music play.